1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile
0: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss That's plushcare.com slash loss plushcare.com slash loss Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler. And today we're talking to Dr. Dara McCashin about what imposter phenomenon is and why we get it. Welcome to the show, Dara.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this. I think it's a really important topic that um, I know I didn't know enough about when I was a grad student or a college student, either one. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. I feel like saying... My name's Dara and I'm an imposter as well, but uh, (laughs) it seems to be a phenomenon that gets us all nodding and interested. But um, yeah, I suppose my own background is in the world of psychology. I um, I suppose I originally was in sociology, social policy as an undergrad. And as I say, I I found the light, saw the light with uh, psychology. I did my PhD in uh, digital mental health. So asking could we use technology to um, intervene with traditional talking therapies for kids? And I was always interested in the good and bad of technology for different sort of psychological outcomes. I had done a, a master's in, for, in forensic psychology. Um, and I suppose like a lot of areas in academia, we go where the funding is and we go where, where new research topics arise. And a lot of my recent... Work would have uh, more kind of in the area of, I suppose, research advocacy and the whole topic of academic mental health, um, really came to the fore in a European Union context, 2017, in and around the time I started my PhD, and I kind of put my hand up at a meeting in response to the the conversation about mental health and well being. Um, in, in a sort of policy meeting and I've never really been able to escape it since. So um, I'm currently chair of a uh, working group within a cost action. And a cost action is a, um, it's a European network that essentially just tries to build um, networks surrounding particular topics. So ours is all to do with academic mental health and it's called Remo Researcher Mental Health Observatory. And my day-to-day job would be assistant professor in the school of psychology at Dublin city university. So, uh, that's me. And I'm also a fellow within the anti-bullying center in Dublin city university as well. So lots going on, basically.
0: I like to ask people how they sort of fell into their career, but it sounds from your intro that it was just sort of one thing led to another
1: pretty much um i have been fortunate to um i i i think just post phd um things went kind of linear uh, in ways that i was told they wouldn't so i'm very privileged and honored to have had that pathway um but i suppose prior to um my PhD and, and masters, I, I was very much unsure as, as to whether I wanted to be involved with psychology. But no, I, I mean I mean I'm always keen to 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 I suppose source opportunities and, and and bring together disciplines and networks. And um I think that's where I derive a lot of my own passion and excitement, which can often get lost when you're in the the rigmarole of academia and the the admin, and whether there's an imbalance with te- teaching and research and funding and the usual things that that can weigh heavy on on particularly early career academics. Um, I've 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 tried to find a balance there.
0: You said a few moments ago that you were tempted to introduce yourself by giving your first name and saying <laughs> I'm an imposter, um. Is that something that you've ever done with in any of the <laughs> yeah. programs that you're in? Is well, that something funny. that you encourage people to just
1: out yourself? <laughs> kind of, in a way. I mean, I suppose, the, well, the, the first thing I, I always say is like, I'm not a professional clinician. Um, granted, a lot of people in the academic world will be aware of this, you know, just because you have a specialism in a... In a in a topic at PhD level doesn't make you a dispenser of professional advice. Uh, but sometimes that message can get lost. But at the same time, what I do like to do in, in talks to do with this, this particular topic is pretty much do something like you suggested. I mean, uh, I remember I was, I was looking through my slides for a talk that I did on, on imposter phenomenon last July. And I actually had a slide that said, um, I stole this ethically uh, because I asked him. Dr Hugh Kearns uh, who's an educational psychologist that does a lot of kind of um, intervention type work with with academics and PhD students. Um, And he does this thing when he walks into a room or when he's given this talk, he'll say, and of course, there is one imposter here today, I'm not sure if you saw them on the way in. You know, really and truly, it's an amazement to me that they haven't been found out. Uh, And he just does this. He builds it up and builds it up to uh, to make the point that if anyone in the room, if your heart rate is increasing or if you're kind of going, oh, my gosh, I think that could be me. It's just a very powerful exercise to see that everyone sitting beside you has the exact same experience. Uh, So I, I remember emailing Hugh asking, could I? Could I use one of his slides? Um, Because I was so inspired by that. Because it's very unusual in kind of learning and development or webinar or training sessions to get something so, I suppose, personal and intimate to oneself that is shared across, you know, academic hierarchies, personalities, ethnicities, and so on. This thing that we're initially terming imposter phenomenon is so common and and pervasive that it, it seems to almost go unsaid so anything that you can do to out yourself as a as a, a self-labeled imposter is very powerful for yourself and others watching
0: I know you said you're not a clinician but in a room like that where you could see that everybody's starting to look dismayed yeah. or concerned or something would you be worried about the one student who didn't
1: that's a good question I've never actually thought of it like that um I suppose I, I wouldn't be worried because if there is a I, I suppose we can all think of different typologies or different cliches whether they're th- true or not that person that is hyper um rightly or wrongly, about their work, about their progression, about their ambitions. Uh, for whatever reason, it is always A, to B, to C. It's a nice linear progression and great, you know. It doesn't have to be a, a, a sense of imposterism throughout. Um, but I suppose we do know from some of the research that has been done on it that there are, like, high, high numbers um of those that would absolutely identify or experience uh, these sort of feelings of, of being an imposter.
0: There's two terms out there, at, at least in America. There's imposter syndrome, mm. which is very commonly used um, in, in the States, uh, and then there's imposter phenomenon. Mm. Are they two ways of saying the same thing, or are these two different things?
1: Um, they are the same thing in terms of what we're referring to. And I'm very, um, although phenomenon as a word, if you haven't had your coffee in the morning and you're flustered, it's a big word. And then academics are very annoying in how they always use acronyms. So to be saying IP all the time, Bart Simpson's jokes aside is not helpful to our listeners. So, but I still stick with it because imposter syndrome has brings with the different connotations um and it it, it, you know language matters it's a fascinating story as i understand it anyway imposter phenomenon originated in 1978 so this was with actually clinicians clans and immis so that was the first paper so it's kind of 1970s yeah and it was actually have their their definition here they said despite facts and trends to support otherwise individuals feel intense feelings of self-doubt fear of being exposed and a sense of that they've been somehow or that they've somehow tricked their way into their field with peers unknowingly overrating their competencies and uh this was with a predominantly female professional sample high achieving female professional sample um and over the decades, it seemed to become par- popularized, perhaps by the self-help industry, by the corporate world, and slowly it became imposter syndrome. It'd be very interesting to map when and where that happened, but syndrome is is medicalized language. It's unknowingly pathologizing something that very w- may well be a normal response in the first instance, to, for example, a new job, a new project, a new team. Um, and when we get into, and, and look, there's always been a debate in psychology about, about um, like, for example, depression, you know, is it, do we get or have depression like we do a disease and that kind of, you know, there are sometimes helpful uh, messages with that, you know, it, in terms of help seeking behavior, if you broke your leg, you would seek help to have it mended. Uh, So if you're feeling broken emotionally, would it not also make sense to go and seek help? Those are nice parallels to prompt people to seek help, particularly those, for example, men, Um, there's a problem there certainly difference with help seeking behaviors there. Um, But with imposter phenomenon versus imposter syndrome, I I worry with the particularly with the evidence base for interventions or for even just understanding it conceptually. I'm always wary and not least because I'm I'm not a clinician. I'm always wary of giving people labels that they may hold on to or or internalize in a in a problematic way or think thinking that they have something and they must be the ones to go off and fix it, you know. Um and perhaps later on we might talk more about you know the, the adaptive response which could be living with this phenomenon that we're calling imposter phenomenon or thinking about uh the where, the when, the why it emerges and stuff like that. So as I said, in a nutshell, language matters and um always trying to avoid um pathologizing people really.
0: It seems like Syndrome sounds like it's happening to the individual and phenomenon sounds like it happens in certain environments.
1: Yeah, it, it, that's true as well. Yeah, I mean, it's more, it's more multi-level in that sense. And like anything, most debates in, 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 in topics like this with psychology centers around some people that are focused too much on the individual. Then maybe some people that focus too much on the organization, and then others that focus too much on the environment or the the governance structures or um, excuse me, more evolutionary perspectives. And you'd be unsurprised to learn that it's likely an in complex interaction between all of these. Um and that's a, I suppose that's another advantage of imposter phenomenon as as a kind of a catch-all description that we can begin that conversation about what is it then about each of those levels that seems to be cultivating these sometimes very intense and consistent feelings across, not just academia. I'm not sure if you've ever Googled imposter and celebrities. There's so many celebrity quotes out there about more or less the same thing uh you, you could be forgiven for thinking it's a new a new doctoral student or a new professor and a new job you know, the same feelings are there
0: before we dive a bit more into um some of those things that you've broached as uh future things we can talk about today because I would love to can we describe what it feels like to experience this phenomenon
1: yeah I mean it's Everyone will have their own version of it, I suppose. And, and that original description by by Clancy Nimes, Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It could well be MA, but uh, just that sense of feeling you're going to be found out. And of course, there'll be different thresholds, uh, you know, really, really intense uh, versus kind of like consistently bubbling under the surface. But broadly speaking it is feeling that you know you'll always have an excuse as to why you're you're not good enough and that actually you're a fraud you just got lucky um so i suppose even in my own my own head or down through the years that thing i i that would resonate with me i I would i would um reduce things to what i just got lucky with that funding and uh, if it was someone else that, that, that it, they would have done a better project. Um, uh, and language like, you know, any day now, someone's gonna come along and they'll, 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 they'll look at the totality of what I've done. And they'll finally, finally, find me out to be the, the, the fraud or the imposter that I truly am. I shouldn't be here that, that type of self-talk, um, for others, it, it might be more comparative. Uh for others it might just be uh really creative ways of discounting actual successes. And that's at the heart of the tension here, that despite objective evidence, to the contrary, you still find a way of um discounting your achievements. And indeed in kinda of Dr. Hugh Kern's work, uh I think he's a freely available book on uh, on this ebook, rather. Um, and there's a great cycle that he describes that, you know, if you think of someone that's, you know, f- fresh out of university, and um, if they're kind of feeling that they don't know their place, that they're out of place, and they create a reason, okay, I must go and do a master's to make myself competitive, and that they get the master's, and then they start looking for a graduate position, and they might get that graduate position. And all the while through this journey, they'll be saying, I shouldn't be here. This is, this is too much for me. Uh, I, I have no competencies whatsoever. I shouldn't be here. They're going to find me out any day now. And my boss is going to come in and say, well, why are you even here? You you need to get out. So they will create a reason. Okay. Now I need to go and do a PhD or now I need to go and do this course. And now I need to go and get this job or earn this money to kind of overtake this feeling of being an imposter. Um and it's amazing how how uh, how creative people get with the the reasoning that they give themselves. It's like oh I just got lucky with the masters or everyone in that course did well so it's not. But a year or two before that, that person would be would have been obsessing. It's like I need to get this master's to to get to the next level. So those are among some of the patterns that I've uh, experienced myself. Uh, that I've heard from others um, and no doubt that there's, there's kind of different iterations of that from from, from different fields. It's, for example, it's quite big in, in, the, um, in the medical profession as well. There's some literature there um, and one of the quotes actually that I used in a talk was by, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you and see if you can guess who it is, no matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am in fact a fraud and take everything away from me? So i like to guess what prominent person that is, Christina.
0: Um, it sounds like it could be anybody. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, I, I, Who is
1: it? Well, see, I, I always, I, it's for an academic audience that I would be using the quotes. They're always ridiculously surprised that it's Tom Hanks um that like someone with such consistent uh competencies in in, in the movie world that has a outright imposter ridden quote like that uh like when are they going to discover that i'm in fact a fraud and take everything away from me despite the objective evidence of all his oscars and all his his uh, illustrious career so it's it's again it, it is one of those things where you go okay that's that's uh that's something that resonates across the board
0: it's um both relieving and sad
1: yeah <laughs> um
0: i'm wondering as i listen um is there a physical health consequence uh, it sounds like one of the consequences um is that it robs people of joy and of um Uh, an ability to appreciate their own success. Mm. And I'm wondering if there's a physical toll.
1: I'm not aware of specific research that would have looked at imposter phenomenon and like at a causal level with kind of physical outcomes. I mean, one important distinction to make here would be there is an ongoing debate, you know, is so one of the most consistent findings and more reliable, areas within psychology because psychology gets a has had some bad press rightly so in recent years with things that aren't replicating and with the you know issues with the predictive power of, of psychology in the real world and and they're important questions but of the things that that we are confident in the big five personality traits are chief among them so you know, there's five of them: openness, extroversion, conscientiousness, neuroticism, um, and agreeableness. And they really are traits that manifest in weird and wonderful ways in our lives. And we can all think of the person that's really, really high, highly agreeable versus someone that's really disagreeable. If you ever try to plan a holiday with friends, you'll instantly see these traits in action the conscientious person wants to plan everything the other person wants to uh be a bit more or the opposite end of that is someone that wants to be a bit more free-flowing one person's highly extroverted loves the idea of meeting uh random people whereas others that would be their idea of their idea of hell um and there is a debate about whether imposter phenomenon is uh, particular manifestation of neuroticism. So neuroticism is, is, you know, the experience, the experience of negative emotion in, 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 in many different ways. And you know, that hasn't really been fully unpacked yet. Um, my sin, uh, there has been some good studies showing that unsurprisingly, you know, th- there is a, um, it is highly correlated. So those that have high levels of neuroticism are perhaps more likely to also report experiencing imposter phenomenon. So how this links back to your original question is that if there, if there are high levels of neuroticism, which can also uh, be associated with, um, uh, different types of anxiety or or, or mood issues that can over time, of course, be linked to, um, more physiological or psychosomatic issues. So even the basics of how the nervous system works, if we do have a, a barrage of negative thoughts some of some of which include you know anxiety about the future um or some of which might include um thoughts about one's uh, sense of being an imposter that over time for example increased heart rate increased cortisol levels um or even that sense of fatigue that we get from having to deal with all our intrusive negative and anxiety provoking thoughts um and the more and more you re- you read those quotes and it was interesting your observation there that you know it's it's relieving yet also sad because there is a lot in, in it when you hear someone talk about their experiences and i remember hearing quotes from from other from other celebrities and you're kind of going God, that is sad. That you know, here's a rock star or whoever that can't enjoy the amazing, unique talents and experiences of a world tour, for example, simply because they think that they shouldn't be there because they're going to be found out. Um, that's you know, if it's heavy hitting for us, imagine what it's like for for their physiological responses. So yeah, it, it would stand to reason that that a kind of a. at a a mechanism level that these types of thoughts over time where they become really intense to the point that they're impacting adversely impacting behaviors um there, there there may well be risks of of um of more physical responses but as i said lots of lots of research still still to be done to establish causal causal pathways
0: you mentioned earlier on that some of the initial, uh, research was, um, looking at women. Mm. Um, and you, uh, talked about how men often are discouraged from, because of social stereotypes from, from seeking help. Um, I'm, I'm wondering as there are more conversations such as the one that we're having, um, and there's more research coming out. If more people will be sharing how it felt when they first noticed it, I, um, shared with you during sound check that um, I mentioned in grad school to a professor that I trusted, uh, many of the feelings that that uh, you describe as imposter phenomenon, I didn't know the name for mm-hmm. it. I didn't know that it happened to a lot of people. And the professor responded with, well, if you don't think you belong here, maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. And that was the first and last time that I brought that up mm-hmm. um, because I didn't want to to be flushed out based on a feeling that I hoped was temporary mm. <laughs> or manageable. Um, how does normalizing the conversation make it more possible that you can get more research about this?
1: It's a great question. I mean, it's terrible to hear. I'm, sorry, but before I even answer, I'm curious if, if I could ask, what was your initial res- your reaction, your gut reaction to that comment or to that response by your professor?
0: Um, that I hadn't expected to be happy at grad school. I had expected it to be meaningful. Right. And so, um, I didn't feel like there was a point in continuing the conversation with the professor, but it also shut down for me probably more, realistic avenues to open that conversation, such as talking to other grad students about whether or yeah. not they were feeling that way and finding someone who could normalize it for me without fear of, well, maybe you should just quit,
1: hmm. Hmm.
0: which is the right decision for many people. But that wasn't what I was worried about. Should I quit? It was,
1: yeah.
0: am I doing this right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause if you're being, i've I've two reactions one is like if i'm being at my most charitable um you know one could potentially conceive of a scenario where somebody is having really implicit and explicit thoughts of is this really the right gig for me such that that may be telling you something and maybe telling the supervisor something you know if there's such levels of doubt maybe that kind of assertive question of you know and ideally compassionately expressed should you be here have you really thought about whether this is right for you and you know you could understand a, a conversation like that 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 may be necessary uncomfortable and, and confronting as as it may be but then on the other hand uh, in the context of the high prevalence of 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 imposter phenomenon and what you're kind of now understanding as being constellation of of all those kind of factors and um and feelings of of imposterism um I, i think the normalization of it is 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 the first step in i suppose in a very therapeutic sense although it's not necessarily intended as such just being able to sit with it and you know, even in getting into, I, I this is another area I've just kind of fell into, I, I'm, I'm in the process of kind of uh, designing a study on it to, to, to understand its, its prevalence and how it manifests with personality. But um, when I've discussed it in the context of it arising in our Remo Cost Action Network, I kind of set about reviewing some of the literature on us and doing a little webinar on us and it just kind of grew from there. And one observation i have is particularly post-pandemic when everything went finally back to in person and you would describe the phenomena you talk about well-known kind of well-known celebrities and uh, i give different quotes and sometimes I'll, i'll give a quote about I really shouldn't, and I'll start swearing be here, da, da 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 who said that, and I'll show a picture of myself because I'll get a bit of imposter feelings the night before, a big talk, for example. And um, this thing happens in the room that you get people nodding little nods that aren't your normal conference nods. you know, they're engaged, they're, they're like nodding as if they haven't been allowed to nod before, as I termed it recently. Um, as if like finally, someone's talking about this stuff and you'll ideally do some sort of breakout exercise that invites people where they're feeling comfortable to in effect, just like you asked at the, at the, uh, or at the beginning, you know, should we out ourselves as an imposter that that often happens and you get this thing in the room where. There could be a postdoc. There could be a master's student. There could be a professor. There could be someone working in um, research admin. There could be different stakeholders. And the power that it ha- that the collective sharing of, oh, yeah, I have that all the time. It's, it's been with me for years. And here's how I manage it. Or here's what I love about it, hate about it. Here's here's how I use it to understand this, this, and this. And... Um, and then when I kind of bring groups back, you just get this sense of, okay, I haven't told you to do anything. I'm not a clinician giving you advice. You have all done. You have all collectively provided the value here by simply acknowledging it, sitting with us, it, sharing it with one other person or a group of people. And then we've just come back. Um, which to me and the power of that as a process and i've seen it in particular two or three times this this year at kind of big events um one was the um uh ESOF, uh it's a big science festival in in europe that was in Leiden in, in july we did a session there there's another session we did in porto and then just kind of small and, and then also the, the webinar that that we did remote kind of so in total a few hundred people, but just seeing that manifest is just incredible. Um and it's 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 great to be able to just say, okay, well, you know, there's so much we don't know about this, uh yet there's such fascination with it. How can we leverage that ethically um in such a way that people get something from it as well? Because often people might come in with, okay, fix me. Or Um, tell me what this problem is all about. And going back to the theme of language matters, it's important to try and dispel myths in the process as well.
0: The Tom Hanks quote Mm. didn't have a happy ending to it. It wasn't, this is how I felt. And this is what I worried about for the first five years of my career Mm. Or, uh, in the first t- ten years of my career, it, it doesn't have a point of U-turn mm-hmm. um, where he started to feel ownership of his career, and it doesn't have a resolution of. But then one morning I woke up and had confidence. It, is there a, an intervention, whether um, on a personal level or in a group level, that that can help people? Or once you get imposter phenomenon, is it yours to keep?
1: Yeah, it's, it's good phrasing that you use there. I mean if you if you take it in, in two ways i mean there are a multitude of um kind of self-labeled effective interventions out there that haven't really been tested um and kind of and you know kind of corporate self-help unregulated self-help industries um whether it's social media that's propelling them whether it's um, you know, pick your your favorite unregulated self-help industry and you can be guaranteed that they'll have a, a course or an e-book or a or a toolkit that they'll be selling you to say that this is how you you know, extinguish the inner imposter and that kind of you know, empowerment language you know, if you can choose to beat it and all of this I've no doubt that there's likely a lot of value in in these things. But there's another issue there, which is like, to what extent is it down to the individual to fix themselves or cure themselves, which is also this medicalized approach as well, isn't it? Um, We should also be holding institutions, employers, our environments accountable as well, such that we can do something positive to at least reduce um the risks of imposterism but the second part of your question there about kind of you know is it always going to be around i think that's a useful way to think about it um and and interestingly when you when you listen to people that you know are aware that they have high levels of trait neuroticism that they've experienced and regularly experienced throughout their life, bouts of anxiety. Um, And they often talk about almost befriending it or like understanding it, that like this will likely never fully go away. So how do I manage it? How do I kind of create a space where, I know what my risk factors are. I know what my protective factors are. Um, I know the things that I have to work on. I know the things that uh, support me. And knowing that is probably more empowering and indeed evidence-based across time. Um, so I know there's a lot in that, but um, I suppose in short, the from an evidence-based point of view, the types of things that, that, that people do Use to understand the, the, um, the many ways that the imposter phenomenon manifests uh, would be, for example, cognitive behavioral interventions, CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, understanding specifically for you, what is it between your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors? Um, how is it that they're connected in such a way that might be uh, worsening the experience of imposter phenomenon and indeed something where there's a clear link to problematic behavior. So really strongly avoidant behavior. So you feel like a fraud. So you don't do the core tasks of your research position. Instead, you, you, you avoid going to the lab or you appear to be busy with all these small unnecessary, but numerous subtasks. These kind of behavioral outcomes that are likely rooted to intense cyclical negative thought patterns and feelings of really low self worth, even just understanding that cycle can be incredibly empowering Um, and can be the doorway into challenging underpinning kind of negative core beliefs such as self worth and and self-esteem and, and look there are many many ways um that different talking therapies will address address those processes so um learning about the role of trauma childhood attachment, all of these complex things i th- I think kind of talking therapies evidence-based talking therapies will of course be of use to a range of things including including imposter phenomena um but it's also important to kind of like what we're doing now, just having a peer-to-peer conversation about these things and a a support structure there that says, well, maybe it's not just about what you and I have to do to manage this really annoying sense of being an imposter. Maybe actually going for that coffee once a week with that group of people that kind of recognize this is an issue and want to call it out and sit with it in that way that almost becomes therapeutic or what can we do, for example, job orientation or, or, um, or the the first day of someone joining this lab, what can we do to, to really reduce the risks of this being an environment where we're all silently walking around with feelings of, of being an imposter. I think those are the sorts of things that, that we should, um certainly prioritized because there's another ethical issue with telling people to you know address the complex psychological routes to things when we know access to psychological therapies is expensive um resources are not plentiful across the many the many um institutions and countries and cultures so so that's important as well, and that's perhaps also why there's there's such um there's been such an emergence of all these other all these other resources. So there's a lot out there. Um, so I am always just uh try to get people to be sceptically cautious yet optimistic about the things they can do.
0: When we're talking about what the individual can do, um, there will. Definitely, be limits if they find themselves experiencing this again and again in a particular environment. Mm-hmm. When you when you do your research and you do your presentations, are there any specific things that you suggest that happen um, at the institutional level? Meaning, the professors can implement certain changes they didn't even realize they could or should do, mm-hmm. or the university program could offer certain. Um, things that are more caring to the human being it it appears to me that any human being could be stressed to the point where they started to have a a confidence crisis Uh, yeah
1: yeah i mean there i'm just recalling that there was an article in Harvard business review by um let me just get the name in case people want to check it out. It was last last year, um Tulshein and uh, Berry Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome was the title. Um and it, it, again it, it's it's that message of let's not pathologize something and put it back on onto the individual to go and address when there may well be institutional or supervisory factors that are that are, uh, worsening the problem. As I said earlier on, it is always going to be multi-level. There's of course going to be something going on at a policy level. There's definitely going to be institutional factors. And of course there's going to be our own individual factors, our personality, makeup, our attachment style, our, our, our childhood history, and so on. And they'll interact in complex ways. And the million dollar question is, how you know? How do they, how do they intersect? So we can intervene, uh, ethically and in an evidence-based manner. But to your question about, um, what that, uh, middle level there, so supervisors, institutions. I suppose it's not rocket science. Doing the thing where there is at least a critical awareness, built into, for example, orientation sessions, um uh kind of peer-to-peer support models that say look this is a common phenomenon here's what it is here's what it isn't and here's uh where we're at in terms of supports that you should access um and that hopefully can cultivate a a culture where people can call out or address or on a bad week can say, look, I'm really feeling like a fish out of water here, and I'm feeling this, this, and this. Uh, would there be any chance that you could support me with this thing? Um, and I, and when that works, you you'd almost, you almost miss it in action. So I've seen people that say, even in passing, they might say, "Oh my god," I'm, the imposter syndrome was big this week because I'm writing this grant for this thing I'm never going to get, and a supportive colleague might come up, might come along and say. I know you think that, but let me show you the roadmap that I used and, you know, sharing a best practice. And all of a sudden that that person feels on the same level and supported and small things like that go a long way. Um, And I know there's more creative ways that the people and, and just basic cultural practices where, where you kind of smash, Hierarchical structures of oh well, this is the senior management and their uh, lunch and coffee habits, and this is the 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 graduate uh, team that sit here a place where everyone goes for tea or coffee once a week, and as you know, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, stuff like it, this where organic conversations can emerge, and and people kind of can dispel myths in action. I, I think cultural practices are probably far more nuanced across um, across different areas and, 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 and different fields. But I think none of that can really happen unless there's that critical awareness at the outset. So my, my kind of message to uh, supervisors and, and institutions is, um, and as much as they can like make, so it's always a dichotomy between, okay, let's make people do this training. We've all had the email from HR saying, you should do this webinar, you should do this. It can often go in, in one ear and out the other. Um, but we really do need to create a value structure there whereby um, building a critical awareness with particularly people at the the orientation or the starting, that, that warming period because what happens then can be really predictive of what happens later on. So even go even harking back to your, your example that you kindly shared about disclosing those feelings to a supervisor, uh, it would be great that that supervisor would have had a critical awareness as to what might have been occurring for you. So as to use your language, it could have been normalized and you can sit with it and take a deep breath and be like, okay, that's something I can now at least try to detach from and I'm not going to internalize it further and, and, uh, and experience, um, even more negative consequences. So, um, those would be my initial thoughts.
0: You've talked to us about how language matters and how you've done group work where, where people got to do this collective nod along with you and, um, does speaking it take some of the power out of it if we hold it inside and we don't tell anybody we're feeling these imposter feelings um but we can we can speak it out the way you have your groups do when you when you leave the workshops Mm. does that take some of the power out of the hold that syndrome can have or phenomenon can have on you
1: i think so yeah it's the truism of uh Says a, a problem shared is a problem halved. Uh, of course, extends to this area. And does that quote from I think it's motiva- motivational interviewing? I understand what I say as I hear myself say it. Um, and look, you can think of this with any friend that might have might be having a problem or m- might be just in an anxious flurry. That's, you know, you, you have some downtime and, and, and you let them express themselves or you that person has the rant. It's just in ranting, it doesn't necessarily have to be about the content, does it? It's just about getting it out and, and making sense as to what's going on. All these things allow that process of awareness for, okay, I'm not an imposter, I just feel like one. Now, those are just words. But imagine if that's actually assimilated to that person's understanding i'm not an imposter i just feel like one it's the first step in detaching from it and being able to name it for someone that has never named it before could be incredibly powerful Um, and then being able to express it in weird and wonderful ways whether they go off and have a few glasses of wine and, and joke about it with the, with the colleague and go, okay, okay, this is what it is. Or whether they have a serious conversation with uh, a peer that's um, gone on to do a, a, a different research project and they can kind of see how it manifests in, in, in that institution and things they could look out for to, to try and uh, fight back against it. There are many things that just by being able to say it we we can um we can understand it, we can detach from it, and we can allow others to then share their version of it. So those, to me, seem to be the the the, the obvious advantages of finding safe and ethical ways to let someone express that.
0: What do you hope listeners will take away? Um.
1: I suppose that level of critical awareness that there's nothing wrong with them per se and um, that there are, there are things that they can do and that I suppose in a nutshell, that they would do something to it just to maybe start that conversation with themselves or, or with others. And uh, what you, I presume you're going to ask what I meant by that. <laughs> um no, go ahead. Well, I I I was just thinking so if someone wants to start that conversation with themselves or others it'd be like I know those feelings that Christina and Dara are discussing here uh and I know I've experienced them. Um how might how might I challenge them or address them? Cuz I just thought it was a it was something that is it part of me or I would hope that the critical awareness of, of hearing about these, 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 the, the, the the, the common nature of imposter phenomenon would help someone begin to try and, um, have more control over it, I suppose, without feeling that there, that there's something wrong with them or that it's all about them. That would be one hope, I suppose.
0: What do you hope this episode sparks?
1: Um do, do, do. I suppose in one ways it would be nice if, if it could just be a bit more freeing for people to be like, okay, it's not it's not just me. No, at the very least, it's not just me. That in itself can be like uh for something for something that's such an internalized cognitive process, it's great that you can realise, okay. Even the amazing Tom Hanks Mm. Fancy actors of the world have it Even the esteemed professors Across all these disciplines Have it or experience it Um, That free Nature would be nice because then that can Just allow a bit of pause That deep breath and then go okay Let's see what this is all about for me
0: Do you think we would relate to each other Differently if we Realised everybody was feeling Insecure
1: yeah, that's interesting, because I often wonder, is that is that another barrier to to people's lack of disclosure about, it? and if you think about hyper-competitive environments, and academia is that, isn't it? There's a crisis of resources in many areas, and because of that, everyone's competing for a limited pot of funding and a broken reward system and so on so anything that, that that could signal weakness uh, if that's even the right word is disa- is disadvantageous to the individual and there could be a feeling that even though there's this encouragement to to disclose a, a, a feeling of being an imposter that maybe that might not resonate with others or it might appear to the supervisor that this person is is uh, um is yeah is weak to use that stigmatized word um and we know that 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 stigma even in 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 the broader mental health sense continues to be a barrier if i say i'm depressed feeling depressed i'm highly anxious i'm xyz that i'll be seen as lesser or weak or risk or and all these stigmatizing responses across the system as well as peers could manifest now look there has been lots of amazing positive work done across societies challenging that and we we have we do see a culture of of mental health dialogue and increasing mental health literacy out there but we also know that the stigma is is alive and well um in perhaps more insidious ways and there's probably likely this is speculative there's probably likely equivalent uh versions of that for imposter phenomenon um but at the same time because there's there's so much uh, uh commonality amongst professions and different uh levels of professional disciplines there's likely a very safe level where people can say um yes look this is a thing and this is how we can address it and this is how we'd be happy to to start that conversation so um, I think that would be one kind of happy common ground for for any area, whether it's academia, whether it's the legal world, marketing world, whatever, you know, what might be the first conversation that different people from different backgrounds and different uh, stages of their career could sit around and share what imposter phenomenon means or has meant for them that's the sort of, that's the sort of lunchtime talk that I'd like to go to.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. McCashin, and helping us understand more about imposter phenomenon. My pleasure. I'm Dr. I'm so glad we did this. I think it's going to resonate with so many people. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.